Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Alex Trembath. Alex is the Deputy Director of the Breakthrough Institute, a research center in California dedicated to technological solutions to environmental problems. His research and writing have focused on the theme of this podcast, namely how to decouple human well-being from its environmental impacts. His work has been published and cited by the New York Times, the National Review, Slate, Issues in Science and Technology, and other leading outlets. In addition to being an avowed eco-modernist, Alex describes himself it's a mouthful here, folks, but hang on to this. A Promethean, Hamiltonian, Schumpterian, Meliorist. And uh, Alex will get you to, to kind of define those terms in, in just a second. Um, but thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on the show. Chris, big fan. Happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, you know, the topic uh, that I'm aiming to uh, to cover today um, and the reason I wanted to have you on um, is uh, there's a bit of baggage to the uh, second and third, maybe fourth, I haven't counted them yet, syllables of eco-modernism, um, namely the, the modernism side. Um, and some as someone who, you know, does not have a humanities education um, and kind of rebelled against my professorial parents um, by, uh, you know, being a bit of a idiot not paying attention to all of the great knowledge they had in these domains. Um, you know, I'm not very comfortable with that term. And, and so I wanted to try and break it down with you, uh, understand it better. And also, um, I understand the uh, breakthrough dialogues this year were all about eco-modern justice. Um, so super excited to, uh, to get, uh, a better idea of that as well. Um, so Alex, uh, you know, we do these self-introductions. I think nothing better than to uh, to break down this Promethean, Hamiltonian, Schumpterian, Meliorist, and we'll try and get you to do your best job at, uh, you know, defining these terms and, and uh, keeping this accessible to uh, to our decouple audience. So take it away, man. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Chris. And I'm happy to dig into all of that. You know, very briefly, I am the deputy director at the Breakthrough Institute. I've been at Breakthrough for 10 years and two months at this point. You know, I, I found Breakthrough as a sort of ideologically struggling undergrad at UC Berkeley, where I was, study, I was studying environmental economics uh, and policy. Um, was actually really off put from a bunch of the ideas of the Breakthrough Institute um, before eco-modernism was even a term of art, or let alone a term with a whole movement around it. Um, but I went through something of an awakening or something of a sort of an ideological transition um, in undergrad and applied for a fellowship here and got hired as an analyst and never found a reason to leave and have become, uh, you know, just, you know, uh, just incredibly energized and inspired, uh, not just by my colleagues at Breakthrough, but everyone in the broader eco-modernist community have been really pleased to see um, the sort of upwelling of eco-modernist dialogue and thinking, including podcasts like this. And as you say, like, um, there, I, I'm, I'm very proud um, that Breakthrough has been able to be a part of an eco-modernist network that isn't sort of ideologically dogmatic and, and, um, uh, and, and actually hosts a variety of sort of views, uh, ideologies, backgrounds, ideas, um, as well as we're really trying to host um, difficult conversations about what we believe, um, which I think we're going to do a little right. bit of here today. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think what's been attractive to me in terms of reading a lot of eco-modernist thinkers is just you know the very tired old narratives of traditional environmentalism, which really, you know, this kind of pseudo-religious um, needing to repent for the the sins of modernity, return to the Garden of Eden. I mean, they're as old as you know, not just the Bible, but uh, you know, many uh, religious traditions themselves. And uh, you know, these ideas just don't seem to have shifted in the last sixty years in the environmental movement. So. You know, if if anything, even if I've been uncomfortable with some elements or some eco-modernist thinkers, I've I've always found them to be really fascinating and and cutting edge uh, analyses, and just it's been intellectually satisfying. So um, we promised a definition of of, <laughs> of this Promethean, Hamiltonian, Schumpterian, Millerist. So break that down for us a little bit. That's my own idiosyncratic manifestation of of my personal sort of eco-modernism and view of the world. Um, but uh, it's it's sort of an accumulation of thinkers and disciplines and and ideas that I uh, that I find really compelling. Starting uh, in the sort of you know 
uh, deep mythic history, the, the Greek uh, myth of Prometheus, um, who uh, who gave humans fire and, and was punished for it, um, uh, which is a, a particular telling of, uh, of, of sort of our technological origins um, and the freedom that they enable and the, the punishment that sort of pre- free um sort of oppressive gods um uh sort of wield again against humanity for technological capabilities um but you know really the the promethean part of that is is more recognition of the predecessors to eco-modernism uh you know i think it was it was um david nye uh who in in the 90s coined um the term Promethean environmentalist, which was a, a type of environmental thinking um, that sought to use technology and technological innovation to address, if not even solve, environmental problems. Um, so, you know, before there were eco-modernists, there were maybe a few self-avowed Promethean environmentalists. Um, moving right along, um, uh, you know, I, I think um for uh, you know, as a as a as a forebear to the sort of modernization theory that we'll talk a lot about today, I think there's I think Alexander Hamilton, widely known for the musical now, um, uh, is is a really important thinker um, in sort of pre-modernization theory. You know, he was actually one of the first uh, sort of Western thinkers who wrote about urbanization, wrote about industrialization, as as well as the sort of institutional arrangements that enable what we now think of as modern society, sort of liberal democracy, sort of centralized financial uh, systems, uh, things like that, um, uh, that I think underpin a bunch of the modernist uh, and technological and industrial progress that enables sort of eco-modern outcomes. Uh, Schumpeter, Joseph Schumpeter was an early 20th century industrial economist who, along with a couple other sort of technological theorists like Nikolai Kondratiev, sort of imagined the long sweep of uh, human history as riding these technological waves. So first you had sort of the dawn of agriculture, um, and, and then you, you had, you had things like capturing energy from rivers. And more recently, you had things like the steam engine, and then you had electricity, and then you had, um, the internal combustion engine and, uh, nuclear fission and solar photovoltaics and nuclear fusion. And, um, obviously it's a little fuzzy around the edges, but the idea is that we have these techno-economic paradigms, uh, these, these waves of innovation, as Schumpeter called them, um, that are generations long, um, more than decades long, actually, um, uh, and, and that are, are really essential to how human societies are organized. Uh, they are the sort of fundamental mediator of humans' relationship with the non-human natural world. Um, and then, you know, when I was reading, doing my sort of Good reading of the American pragmatists. I, I came along this idea of meliorism, and, and meliorism is, is sort of, I, th I think, the um, the pragmatic middle point between optimism and pessimism. You know, in, in very rough terms, and I'm not a philosopher, but in very rough terms, a pessimist expects things to get worse. An optimist expects things to get better, and a meliorist believes that we, as human societies, can make things better with our with our actions. To describe it in a nutshell. Um, so at one point I realized that I was a Promethean, Hamiltonian, Schumpeterian, Meliorist, and someone pointed out that that really does roll off the tongue, um, if, if not uh, make a lot of sense right off the bat. But that's what, that's, uh, that's, that's my little self-indulgent way I describe myself. I won't, I won't get you to say that uh, phrase five times fast, but I think you could probably pull it off. For me, again, coming, I've, I was looking over uh, Wikipedia feverishly last night trying to get my head around modernism, and it's, it's tough. It's a you know, philosophical movement. It's, a, you know, it's an art. It's an architecture. Um, it's a pretty tough nut to crack. But I think one of the fundamental narratives of it is an idea of progress. Um, and uh, I think in terms of framing it against some of the opposing paradigms, um, you know, this idea of, you know, a romantic longing for the past. Um, I think that's one of the key things that separates it. And, and, and just, you know, looking at, um, you know, degrowth thinkers, um, looking at much of the mainstream environmental movement, this idea of, of going back, it's, it's just so nonsensical once you start to look at the impacts of, of uh, early human um, economic activity and, and what that did to to nature and, and just the numbers that we have now, you know, short of a, a mass die off, there is no going back, you know, we create technologies, they bring with them benefits and harms. And we're constantly in this process of, of problem solving those harms and trying to move onwards. And I think, uh, from my understanding, 
this this embrace of modernity and this maybe meliorism or slight optimism is that we can sort of continue on that path of solving problems with with new technologies responding because we have no other choice there there is no going back am i am i on base there you're very on base. And I think the we have no other choice is a pretty important part of it. Um, so before we get into sort of any value assertions about modernity or sort of truth claims about modernism or modernity itself, I would just echo what you just said, Chris, which is that there are seven going on nine, uh, eight or nine billion of us on this planet right now. Um, there is no going back to a pre-industrial or pre-modern or Edenic past. Um, uh, in, in which uh, in which there is sort of a simpler, less technological uh, living, less consumption, less industry, and just and just far more room for human uh, for, for non-human flourishing. There's billions of us. Uh, we uh, we we have uh, desires. We have cities. We have farms. We need to feed ourselves. We need to clothe ourselves. We need to protect our our, our well-being. Um, and it's simply fantastical to imagine going back to pre-modernity or something like it, even if we wanted to. Um, now, do would we want to in like a thought exercise? Maybe you know one of the one of the sort of interesting critiques of eco-modernism. Eco I think is um, that eco-modernism is sort of making ex making excuses for the ravages wrought on nature by industrial modernity and large human populations that are enabled by things like the steam engine and the Haber-Bosch process that makes synthetic, synthetic nitrogen and electricity and roads and things like that. And, you know, there's there might be some truth to that. Maybe um, what was better for all of the planet and, and the biodiversity of, uh, of non-human nature was several hundred years ago when there were less than a billion people on the planet and all of the forests were still standing and, and the grasslands hadn't all been converted to cropland and grazing lands yet. Um, and, uh, and, and our sort of technological and economic advances and innovations hadn't enabled this explosion of, of human populations as, has, as we've witnessed over the last two centuries or so. Um, there was a lot more nature then. There were more whales. There were more wolves. Um, there were dodo birds and, you know, a bunch of extinct species um, uh, sort of all over the planet that we that modern uh, societies, that modernization have extirpated. They're gone. Like that is a outcome of modernization and one of the sort of central problems with modernization, not just the critiques of it, a, a, a central problem of modernization that you, I think, gestured at in, in your in introducing remarks. Um, so it, it, I think it's an interesting uh, thought exercise uh, to, to, uh, to ponder um, what we've lost uh, with our technological, infrastructural, economic advances. And we have lost a tremendous amount of non-human nature, a tremendous amount of species, a tremendous amount of animal populations. Um, and we, we can dig into this a little bit more, but that's absolutely a loss. Um, uh, and, and we shouldn't pretend that it's not. And I think on on the human front, if we think about sort of the winners and losers of modernity, um, certainly indigenous peoples around the world um, have had a rough go of things. You know, whether we want to look at, you know, objective statistics around lifespan and things like that, it's it's possible that those things have reversed themselves. But that's been a, a bit of a cruel process. And I think... Um, you know, looking at the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, some of the the language again, you've you've painted a sort of open-ended. Hey, we want to debate. We want to we want to talk about things and not be absolutist um, in in this uh, philosophic movement. I think some things. You know, looking at maybe George Monbiot's critiques, this idea of like, you know, is this a intensification and urbanization? Is this like a forced urbanization? Is this like an enclosure of the commons? Is there uh, any any room for, or have you seen discussions around uh, like indigenous rights uh, within that context? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that the the sort of fundamental premise of eco modernism is that you know again to zoom out a little bit is that humans are special. Uh, we are a special species on this planet. We're sort of the, we're the, literally the one and only species with advanced language, writing, history you know, sort of planning, obviously you see versions of technology and planning and culture and language in other species, but not nearly to the degree that we have. Um, and so, uh, and so that's, that's actually an important, I think, truth claim in eco-modernism. Um, and, uh, and, and it leads to sort of a, a really central premise of eco-modernism that, which is that, um, human 
progress and human well-being are a precondition um, to uh, to our to environmental sustainability, um, and that uh, and, and that sort of um, the the right to sovereignty, uh, the the right uh, to for societies to choose their own uh, destiny um, is, if not un if, if not non negotiable, uh, then. Uh, really central to eco-modernism that um, uh, how a how a society uh, exploits natural resources or lives with uh, lives with non-human nature and not and, and natural systems um, is up to them um, and that's a really uh, and that's a really complicated not simple claim um, but uh, but uh, it is it is pretty foundational to eco-modernism which is to say um, that you know sort of in indigenous populations, um, have uh, have a right to self determination uh, and have a right to um, uh, their relationship with uh, with the non human world and I think um, I think what makes sort of eco modernism uh, interesting and unique um, is that we we at least try to reckon with the degree to which um, sort of uh, indigenous self determination uh, determination and sovereignty will redound to um, more and less uh, industrial and sort of highly technological outcomes, depending on the context. So, you know, we have a, a new essay in the latest issue of the Breakthrough Journal by my colleagues, uh, uh, by my colleagues, Seaver Wang and Maya Anthony, um, who look at the, the, the sort of stalwart commitment to coal uh, mining and generation uh, of, by the Navajo Nation. Um, uh, and I think that uh, that essay is sort of an, an attempt to grapple with um, the degree to which uh, our sort of theories of modernization, sort of um, decarbonization and urbanization um, and, uh, and, and dematerialization um, are complicated by the sort of desires and rights of, uh, of, for instance, indigenous populations who might have uh, who might have different priorities in how they uh, and, and how they interact with and, and live with the land and live with natural resources. Um, and so I, I absolutely think um, that uh, um, that modernization has been um, devastating to not just indigenous populations, but to uh, to uh, to all sorts of communities and societies around the world in a bunch of ways. I think that uh, sort of um, vulnerability to uh, both nature and human violence is not the exception. Uh, in uh, in modernity, but that's actually the rule. Sort of in the long sweep of history, we have always been a a violent species and have always been vulnerable to the natural world. And and uh, one of one of the things that I think eco modernists at least investigate and even emphasize is that that's less true today than it has been before. There's less violence. There's less exposure and vulnerability to um uh to natural res uh, to to natural disasters and extreme weather and things like that in um in relative terms at least and often in absolute terms um uh, and, and i say all, and I, I i do want to emphasize that it's all in incredibly sort of complicated and messy not simple um which is what we're talking about you know like the the, the modernism and the modernization and eco-modernism is messy is complicated is at different scales and over different uh over different timelines um and that makes it i think both a very rich sort of study, a rich scholarship, um, and also incredibly uh, sort of politically, emotionally, and spiritually difficult to traverse. I, I think another feature uh, of eco-modernism, like especially in contrast to uh, some of its competing ideologies, you know, which might discuss kind of human beings as a plague or a virus upon the earth, is a, a kind of positive um outlook on on humans and humanity and uh you know i was just reading james lovelock's uh new book nova scene this is a book he uh wrote at the age of tender age of 99 years old um but he he talks about humans as being you know the first and probably the only um example of the the universe and the cosmos becoming aware of itself you know in terms of our ability to uh, unlock the secrets of the universe and understand it and that you know this this amazing uh phenomenon ha has occurred um and and it's just i think an example and i think lovelock is probably um influential to uh to the eco-modernist movement to some degree but that that sort of positive outlook on humanity is uh, amongst environmental thinkers is is pretty rare and maybe maybe somewhat unique to to this school of thought yeah you know i think at its core eco-modernism attempts to sort of reconcile global modernity uh, with environmental stewardship and sustainability, which not to paint with too broad a brush, 
but which sort of conventional environmentalism tends to view as uh, as in opposition. Um, and obviously, as I sort of talked about before, that's for good reason. You know, as we have developed advanced technologies from the steam engine through nitrogen fixation through uh, internal combustion engine and and big power plants and big factories and tractors and cars and this is to say nothing of the tools of of modern and industrial war uh, like nuclear weapons and, and chemical weapons and ICBMs and things like that. Um, uh, you know, you know, our technologies have wrought tremendous damage on human and non-human nature. Uh, at the same time, uh, they have enabled far greater populations, um, and I think that is mostly good. Um, I, I am a fan of my fellow human beings, um, and, uh, and and think that when people want to create more human beings, that's a that's a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful thing, not a scary thing. Um, but there's more of us uh, living longer, healthier, more vibrant. Uh, freer lives than there ever have been uh, by orders of magnitude on this planet. Um, and that is, is just as sort of underpinned by our technological uh, and industrial capabilities as the, as the damages that we've wrought along the way are. And the, um, so the, the sort of, I think, uh, mission, if there is one of eco-modernism, is to sort of recon reconcile the, the degree to which um, modernity has decreased our um, uh, our per capita or sort of relative impacts on the environment um, uh, with uh, with the impacts the, the sort of aggregate impacts that we still make um, which are large you know we uh, we use most of the non ice covered land on the planet today to feed humans that it's a tremendous amount of uh, of nature that we've converted uh, for our exclu almost exclusive use. Um, and, uh, and, and that is, uh, that, that is real loss. Uh, and, and it's something that, um, that eco-modernists take seriously and, and want to, want to address, uh, through sustained innovation, through policy, um, and, you know, through the tools, uh, that modernity, that modernity has, has given us. Um, and again, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult problem, not an easy one. I remember we had an earlier, uh, informal conversation, um, and we were, I was talking a little bit about um, what I perceive as kind of the triumphalism of, of eco-modernism or perhaps an embrace of the status quo, um, perhaps not being radical enough in the face in the context of um, the potential, you know, very, very serious problems that loom, you know, which again, so far we've been able to solve the green revolution staved off, you know, the neo-Malthusians, um, but it, things could flip at some point. And uh, it was really interesting because you were saying, listen, like this is not necessarily locked in. There's, there's tons of people and movements that are actually pushing back against, um, you know, what we're advocating for. So can you expand on that a little more? Cause I remember finding that to be really interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm fairly unapologetic in my embrace and celebration of, uh, of human progress over, you know, what we call modernity in the last couple hundred years, again, with, uh, since the dawn of the steam engine and electricity and the Haber-Bosch process and, and the internal combustion engine, and more lately, things like nuclear fusion and genetic modification of agriculture, uh, the population has grown, literacy has grown, infant and maternal mortality have plummeted, education and liberal democracy have exploded all over the world. Um, there's more free exchange of art and commerce and ideas than there, than was imaginable. The you know the 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 lower middle class. So you some you know some of the poorest people in the world today still live probably better lives than the kings and queens of 200 years ago by by dint of the fact that they have a toilet and a cell phone. Um, let alone how you and I live, uh, which which is would have seemed literally fantastical to the most wealthy and secure people of 100 or 200 years ago. Um, so that pro and that progress is real. Um, and uh, and I think it actually continues to this day, even as we've become sort of more alert to the, the challenges and the risks posed by global warming and, and anthropogenic climate change. Um, even today, we see less vulnerability to natural disasters and extreme weather, um, thanks largely to sort of modern and resilient infrastructure than we saw even 20, 30 years ago. Uh, we see we see uh, more economic loss, but less uh, less lives, fewer lives lost to things like hurricanes and fires and droughts um, than we did 30, 50 years ago. Um, so that, that progress uh, on, um, uh, for human societies is, is real and not worth, and, and, and we should not take it for granted. Now, that could reverse. You know, the, the risks posed by, cl by climate change include things like drought and sea level rise that lead to storm surges and more floods. And I live in Northern California and now I'm just like, 
kind of geared up in late summer every year to spend a lot more time inside avoiding the choking smoke from the wildfires. And as we are talking right now, there's uh, there are two hurricanes hitting North America, um, which is not uh, necessarily sort of insane in historical terms, um, but is, is something that we could expect in the long term to increase in frequency and intensity um, and, and drive more sort of loss of life, more sort of uh, loss of, of, of human prosperity. Um, and, uh, and those are, those are, those are risks that are worth, again, taking extremely seriously. Um, I think for eco-modernists, the conclusion though, is that, um, sort of keeping those trend lines going in the right direction, um, uh, is, um, uh, you know, requires the, the same things as, um, uh, as we would require if they started going in the wrong direction. And, and that means uh, more wealth. Uh, that means more sort of resilient infrastructure, which, which requires more energy. Uh, that means producing uh, more food uh, with, with uh, more resilient food, uh, more, more resilient food systems, uh, which again means more reliance on things like synthetic fertilizer and irrigation that aren't as dependent on the, on the vagaries of non-human nature. Um, it, uh, it probably means um, not any sort of uh, forced way, but more people living in cities um, that are, again, sort of more, more resilient um, to, uh, to uh, extreme weather and natural disasters. It means uh, living higher energy lives. You know, a warmer planet will require more air conditioning and, and, will, re- and will require um, uh, you know, more refrigeration, um, uh, and, and, and all, and so like all of the things that we've been doing to drive progress, the, re- the very real progress that we've seen today are the things that we need to keep doing to, pre- to either prevent or buffet those, uh, those trend lines from reversing. Um, so, uh, I don't want to be sort of, uh, uh, utopian about it or triumphalist about it. There are real risks. Obviously, there is, and we'll get into this when we talk a little bit more about eco-modern justice, there's tremendous inequity in the world and how these technologies are distributed today. Um, but for us, the, the sort of fundamental conclusion is uh, a greater distribution of, of that wealth and technology, um, not, a, not a pulling back from it. Mm-hmm. I was having a, a really interesting conversation again, preparing for this, uh, for this episode, uh, with, with a good friend of mine. Um, and, uh, one of the things he said was that, you know, modern problems or the problems of modernity require modern solutions. Um, you know, something like climate change is not going to be overcome by maybe, I don't know too much about postmodern music, but, but by sort of decentralized, small as beautiful solutions. Like they just, they, they can't match the challenge and the kind of, um, politics that have, uh, delivered, um, some of the achievements of modernity in terms of say, you know, the build out of, of the grid growing by six or 8% every year. Um, that occurred under a, a very different set of politics than those with which we're, we're currently living under, um, you know, where there was a greater role for the state, say there was some planning involved, um, and I think, you know, we're seeing now that the solutions are kind of potentially a bit postmodern with, uh, you know, rooftop solar, decentralization, nimbyism, et cetera. So what, what are your thoughts on on that statement? Modern problems require modern solutions. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what modern means. Right. Um, and I, I, I'm glad you right. bring up sort of postmodernism, because uh, in, in many ways, the sort of uh, liberalized electricity markets um, and uh, sort of small is beautiful solutions are, are postmodern in the sort of original sense of, uh, of of modernization, which was really about sort of state capacity for planning, was about sort of massive, rapid, large scale build out of things like the interstate highway system and dams and nuclear power plants, um, uh, which seem um, a lot less possible today in what we still call modern societies, uh, maybe more possible in slightly less postmodern societies like India or Bangladesh or uh, or Brazil or or China, um, where you do see uh, still quite a concerted sort of state directed industrial development um, in ways that are not always super encouraging uh, from from a human rights perspective, right? Um, but I think, but not you know to to address your question, I think it's a fundamental challenge to, to sort of eco modernists and eco modernism. Um, you know, with sort of modernity and postmodernism has come a tremendous amount of human. 
um, uh, freedom, a human, not just decoupling from our dependence on non-human nature, but a decoupling from our, from, uh, our contact with the industrial systems that allow for human flourishing. So, you know, like a typical person in the United States or Western Europe or many East Asian countries, um, you know, rich countries in the world today, um, has really no connection to the food system that feeds her, um, ha- really has no sense of, the uh of the power plants and the grid uh that enable her to turn her light on in the morning um uh of, of the sort of material footprint of her lifestyle because you know she does you know what i do which is i, I work at a laptop all day in a think tank um you know I, what i produce are things on the internet you know i write reports and i write articles and i organize virtual workshops and i write tweets um you know we're just like in in the sort of postmodern world we're so disconnected from the infrastructural technological and material uh and material and material infrastructure that uh that enables uh that enables our lives um and i think uh and i think that has uh made us um less able um to uh, to sort of manage those systems in uh in a sort of centralized sort of in, in sort of uh, economic terms, sort of rationally and eff- rational and efficient way, um, and so you see uh, a sort of tremendous increase in uh, in sort of liberalization of markets and and freedoms and thing and things like that. Um, and there are you know there are good reasons for those things happening, but they do come with costs. You know, as you know, we're we're now uh, facing the the challenge of trying to decarbonize. Say, just you know, just talk about the U.S. for now. Um, trying to decarbonize the, the United States energy system by mid-century, by, by 2050, say. Uh, that requires something like um, tripling our global, our, our national electricity generation capacity, tripling or quintupling our transmission capacity. It requires uh, building 10 times the amount of things that, uh, like pipeline infrastructure for things like ammonia and hydrogen and carbon dioxide. And we know, uh, we know how hard it is to build one pipeline between your country and mine today. Um, uh, you know, because, uh, again, because of, I, I think of the sort of, uh, liberalization of, uh, of, of modern societies, um, and, uh, and the sort of disc, the, the disconnection between, uh, our sort of personal thriving and well-being from the, uh, industrial infrastructure that makes all that possible. Um, so I think, and I think that's a real challenge, um, both to sort of eco-modernism, but then to just sort of sustained maintenance of infrastructure and to environmental remediation writ large. Like if we can't build big things or anything, then how are we supposed to address any of the problems that we have? You know, I've got some sort of half-baked thoughts on that at best right now. Um, but I feel like when I start having these conversations, it always ends up with some version of, we just need institutional change. We need to change our institutions, which I agree with at first blush, but I don't, that's not exactly sort of a pragmatic program for reform. Um, so it's uh, I, I, what I would just sort of emphasize is that that's a huge challenge um, for eco-modernists, especially. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, part of it's changing institutions, but but how do you do that? You need uh, public pressure, especially within something like a liberal democracy. And and I, th- I think part of that is this question of, of aesthetics, right? And, and modernism, again, from my Wiki- Wikipedia read last night, I'm no expert on this, but it's an artistic movement. It's, an, it's a, it's a uh, uh, why am I stumbling on the word? Architectural movement, a philosophical movement. And so I think sometimes um, when I when I start thinking through, I was, I was talking with Charles Mann a little while ago, and he really you know, we were talking about this wizard and prophet dichotomy and, and he was really challenging me. And, and there's a, a vision of eco-modernism that can look pretty dystopian, I think, right? That we all live like termites, uh, termites crammed into, you know, these, these high rises. Um, you know, our food is grown in a, in a vertical farm. Um, you know, weeding is done with laser beams. Um, you know, I think that's supposed to be balanced by the fact that we live right next to, you know, beautiful, undisturbed nature. Um, but, you know, I think there's an unease. Like we have a we have a tie to the aesthetics of kind of like a bucolic countryside to seeing you know cows grazing in the fields. Um, so how do you see the the kind of challenges of of selling that aesthetic of eco modernism? 
Yeah, I mean, the first would be to push back a little bit on the sort of brave new world dystopian portrait of eco-modernism. That is absolutely, I don't know, sort of a downside risk to an eco-modernist program of reform or, or whatever. Um, but I think if you look at cities around the world, if you uh, if you look at um, if, if you look at what sort of enables my life, which is a very urban one that is underpinned by industrial agriculture and, and industrial livestock production um, and modern energy. You know, I live in Northern California, which means I, I, I still benefit from one nuclear power plant and, you know, a, a bunch of other modern energy infrastructure. Um, it's not actually dystopian. It's beautiful. Um, uh, and 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 so the it, it itself sort of a hyper murder hyper modern hyper urban uh, industrialized agriculture and energy systems um, are not scary things and I, I think you're right that in our imaginations they are um, because it's either sort of romantic bucolic Eden or Blade Runner. Um, uh, and like, and, and like vat grown food that tastes like nothing. Um, and that's just a failure of imagination because in order to imagine a sort of beautiful and prosperous sort of eco-modern world, you only have to like walk outside in any rich part of the world and, and see that's what we're already living in in many ways. And there are risks and, uh, and, and failures and shortcomings and equities in that. Um, but it's not ugly. Also, you know, the second thing I would say is that these types of systems interact and, and sort of co-evolve and, and co-produce each other. So um, it's not like a choice between hyper efficient, high yield agriculture and, you know, everyone growing their own food uh, in either sort of small uh, subsistence farms or urban gardens or things like that. We have all of it already. Um, and, and, you know, if anything, I have my own problems with. Um, uh, you know, a bunch of the sort of regenerative and organic agriculture stuff. Uh, I have a bunch of problems with folks who suggest that we should be feeding a lot of our populations with urban gardens. I just don't think any of that is remotely possible. And if we were to shift an appreciable amount of our food production from industrial to organic, then we would use more land, we'd use more pesticides, we'd use uh, more fertilizers and, and organic fertilizers like cow dung that actually has worse nitrogen runoff impacts. Um, so there, there, um, the, so I, you know, there are sort of ugly parts to that romantic bucolic part of it too, but fundamentally, like all of these systems, um, actually exist together. Um, well, I, again, I live in, uh, Oakland, California. Um, I can drive, you know, 30 minutes and, and see, uh, and, and see, uh, a refinery. I can see a natural gas plant. I can drive on the coast and see a nuclear power plant. I see high voltage transmission. I can drive through the California Central Valley and see, you know, some of the most uh, uh, high yield, high productivity produce production on the planet. Also, I can drive, you know, an hour north and uh, and and sort of revel in my hyper privileged wine tasting vibes in the relatively low yield but gorgeous like hills of Sonoma and Napa County, and I could drive south to Pescadero and go berry picking at like a, at, a, at an organic farm that only uses manure from the goat farm up the street. Um, and I enjoy doing that. You know, I can I I can actually sort of interact with both the, 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 the types of nature and the types of human product production systems at various scales. Uh, the question is, given that I think there's always going to be some, as, as Emma Maris wrote in an essay for the Breakthrough Journal, interwoven decoupling, these systems of different scales and different production designs and different production aesthetics are going to sort of weave together. The question really will always be a question for us, which is what is the ratio? What is the, what is the appropriate mix of that for me? I think the correct, the right answer is mostly urban, mostly very high productivity agriculture, uh, mostly uh, uh, big um, power plants um, uh, and, uh, and modern energy systems um, uh, and, and relatively less sort of low productivity um, agriculture, relatively less sort of peri-urban and suburban living. Um, but of course, there's always going to be some of all of that. Um, and again, that's uh, that brings me back to the sort of a, a fundamental precondition that I think needs to be a part of eco-modernism, which is uh, that, you know, humans are going to human societies are going to exist and evolve in, in, in ways that they want to. And sometimes that will actually be at the expense of non-human nature and it'll, it'll come with conflicts with nature and with other humans. Um, and there's no avoiding that. 
whether it's in a eco-modernist utopia or a bucolic dystopia, there will always be tensions, frictions, and conflicts. And uh, and and sort of part of the modernism, uh, part of the mo- the modernity in eco-modernism is grappling and reckoning with those frictions, not pretending you can utopia your way out of them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting talking about the aesthetics uh, of uh, of modernity in some sense, and you know, I, I think it's probably pretty accurate uh, portrayal to say that I've I've been nuke pilled or I'm I'm standing for nuclear. Uh, but I mean, the you know the the graphic uh, artwork of decouple is the Diablo Canyon plant, and I mean. It's, uh, I, I think in my younger years, I never would have imagined thinking about a nuclear plant as, as something beautiful. Um, but I mean, obviously the, the scenery, the California scenery is pretty amazing. And just like the realization that something like 10% of California's electricity is produced on this, you know, trivial, uh, land footprint where there's, you know, humpback whales breaching, uh, you know, on the bay of the nuclear plant. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. That was a, a certainly a shift for me. I remember, holding my breath, ironically, driving past the nuclear plants in Ontario, um, despite the fact that they produce no air pollution. But <laughs> literally hidden from view, right? Like no, like right. hardly any Californians ever see that for like reasonably good reasons. Like you had to put it next to the ocean. Sure. And you don't want like a ton of traffic going by. And, you know, like it is where it is for a reason. But also it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. It is a right. it is a, a bluff with native grasslands and, and native flowers overlooking uh sea life and seabirds and whales and seals um and you can watch that you can watch the sunrise over it and there's this i think rather inspiring industrial installation there um that even right. without all the 10 percent of california's electricity that diablo canyon generates is still a sort of a beautiful facility you know I, I find it striking um and that is simply you know that is simply not the uh the the type of uh uh, of sort of uh, environmental sustainability aesthetic that anyone is brought up with. Um, what they're what they're brought up with this is, is sort of rolling hills and trees and birds and like low and sort of low productivity agriculture um, and, uh, and and power plants um, as uh, as a threat to that um, and transmission lines and and trains and railroads and things uh as uh invading uh our 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 non-human nature well there's also this this kind of aesthetic battle right um you know i think which occurs within the media and within ad campaigns and just uh you know what we consume in terms of uh popular media um you know perception of say windmills and solar panels as almost being a, a you know biological expression of the landscape like we're kind of enculturated to see it that way and i think there's maybe a growing unease with that you know you're seeing more and more nimbyism even from champions like robert f kennedy who didn't want to see those wind turbines off uh, the coast of one of his vacation properties um so you know that's that's very interesting um i do want to shift gears because we have probably about 15 or 20 minutes left um and uh the uh, eco-modern uh, justice theme of the uh, breakthrough dialogues is something I definitely wanted uh, to touch on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of talk about environmental justice um, out there right now, um, particularly with the environmental NGOs. And so this this framing um, is of interest to me. You know, an example that I found um, very interesting was that with the closure of Indian Point in New York. Um, and the opening of a number of gas plants and, and maintaining a few pretty dirty, um, inefficient gas plants within Asthma Alley, um, which you know directly impacted racialized communities where these these power plants um, were sited. Um, there was a statement by I think it was the African American Association of Environmentalists that were saying, you know, how many kids are we willing to sacrifice, racialized and minority kids, um, to asthma and these respiratory conditions, so that we can save, you know, a trivial amount of fish larvae. Um, you know, there there's there's justice arguments to be made across the board. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the dialogues, what were kind of real highlights for you that, that came through? I was talking to you, I think, just when this was being dreamed up uh, back in the spring before you guys had your submission. So walk us through some highlights, uh, some things our listeners might not expect. What are the qualities of, of eco-modern justice? Yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, it is one that we continue to wrestle with and grapple with. And that was the point of the Breakthrough Dialogue that we just hosted a month or so ago and is the point of the latest issue of the Breakthrough Journal, which you can find on our website, www.thebreakthrough.org. Um, but has always really actually been a big part of the Breakthrough Institute's mission and of eco-modernism. Again, I, I stated that sort of human well-being is a pre condition of environmental sustainability and stewardship. Humans are special and and sort of protecting prosperous, uh, uh, free 
um, uh, safe lives for all humans around the world is, is a precondition to environmental protection and sustainability. It's Ecomodernism is fundamentally a justice-oriented uh, sort of position in the world. Um, and you know, sort of how that sort of manifests specifically um, happens in happens in different ways depending on the sort of technology or society or policy um, or sort of level of economic development development you're talking about. You know, like I, I think that um, uh, that, that fundamentally um, eco modern justice is an attempt to sort of reconcile um, the. Uh, the sort of disparities and equities of modern society uh, with progress in the same way that it's an attempt to reconcile um, sort of global modernity with uh, environmental sustainability. Obviously, sort of the uh, the ravages of modern society, whether that's economic inequality or political disenfranchisement or continued violence or exploitation, um, these are features of the modern world. Um, they do not have to be features of sort of a free, modern, democratic, just society, um, or, or you know, or they do not have to be features uh, of uh, of modernization um, or, or central features at least. Um, we don't, you know, I don't think we have to roll back the clock on modernization um, or even on sort of you know global capitalism um, to achieve more just outcomes. You know, one of the, one of the things that has frustrated me about a lot of the sort of justice conversations, including the environmental justice conversations, has been a sort of anti-capitalist bent as opposed to a post-capitalist bent. And, what, and wherever one falls on the sort of capitalist, uh, anti-capitalist, degrowth, socialist spectrum. Um, you know, Marx was not an anti-capitalist or an anti-industrialist. Mar Marx was a post-capitalist. Um, Marx, uh, Marx argued against Malthus. Marx ar argued in favor of industrialization and in favor of cities and in favor of factories, not against these things. Um, and so I, I think um, I think in, in many ways, eco-modern justice um, is, uh, is is an attempt to. Um, to uh, to sort of revive uh, the sort of uh, justice oriented origins of sort of the pro modernization industrialization efforts and sort of work that happened in the 19th and 20th centuries and that have enabled again the sort of explosion in democratic freedoms and li and uh, and liberal uh, liberal societies um, as well as a sort of much more equitable uh, distribution of health and education systems and technologies. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there, but, um, you know, because uh, we can talk about sort of specific instantiations of, of eco-modern justice. But that's really what we're attempting to do is, is attempting to understand um, how progress has happened, where and how and why it is not widely or equally or, or best distributed today, um, and how to, uh, how to accelerate and better distribute that progress as opposed to rolling it back. I think that was uh, one of the big themes was, um, you know, a lot of the uh, environmental justice uh, discourse and dialogues is about um, kind of the inequitable burdens and risks, you know, who's exposed to pollution, who's not. And, and the, the focus of the eco-modernist uh, justice movement is more around um, equitable distribution of the benefits um, and, and sort of, I don't know, is, is, that a, is that an accurate framing? Absolutely. No, it's, um, you know, it, as with all things eco-modernist, eco-modern justice is an assets-based Framework as opposed to a deficits-based framework. Uh, you know the the sort of uh, the the goal is uh, to uh, to accelerate and, and distribute sort of growth, uh, wealth, technology, sort of freedom, um, as opposed to as opposed to again rolling back um, the sort the sort of systems that have uh, that, that have enabled uh, our uh, again um, by historical standards very comfortable, wealthy, and free modern lives. Um, and obviously, it's a it, it's a necessarily moving target, you know. Just because um, a a poor person today is much better off materially than their great 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 grandfather was, doesn't mean that they aren't suffering or aren't poor or aren't excluded from political or economic or social opportunities. Um, but it does mean that, um, that uh, it does mean that the sort of forces of progress that enabled. Uh, that enabled that change over generations um, have been sort of directionally uh, beneficial um, and, and sort of the, uh, you know, the sort of both the technological and the, and the social um, 
the, the social processes, again, whether that's democratization or dematerialization or decoupling um, or decarbonization or, or just deployment of technologies, um, that uh, we should we should sustain these uh, these processes as, a, as opposed to halting them or rolling them back. Or, you know, in many cases, maybe we need to aim them better um, uh, or use different technologies or, or use different political systems to achieve our ends. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's fundamentally, I think, not a sort of anti-modernist or anti-capitalist or anti-progress view of justice, uh, which I, I think, um, I think is what happens to a bunch of sort of environmental justice movements in their sort of specific manifestations. And, and often the, the policies, uh, delivered are, are, you know, highly unequal. I mean, I think about the uh, feed-in tariffs for, uh, for solar, for rooftop solar. It's literally a wealth transfer to the upper quintile, which is basically the upper, uh, income distribution quintile, which are essentially the only households that can have the capital, get the loan, put the solar panel on the roof, and then the ratepayer pays them a lot of money way above. Um, what they pay for electricity uh, to subsidize that. This is a problem. I don't want to say, I, I actually think there's been a lot of progress in the sort of environmental justice movement over the last 30, 35 years that it has existed. And you do hear quite a bit more uh, about both sort of assets of infrastructure and wealth generation. And you hear more about things like uh, things like healthcare and access to jobs that are actually sort of a much bigger determinant of public health and economic outcomes than any of the sort of environmental exposures um, in question. Um, but also you do see, I think, a fair bit of sort of hijacking of justice movements by and by sort of aesthetic and political environmental values. Um, you know, like there's there's nothing sort of justice enhancing uh, about a feed in tariff for rooftop solar that, that overwhelmingly goes to benefit um, uh, the wealthy homeowners in California, for instance. Um, and yet that is a program of sort of a lot of environmental justice advocacy in California, whereas keeping the Diablo Oak Canyon power plant open to prevent more natural gas burning, which is what will happen, is not a program. In fact, it's the opposite. Um, you have the opposite effect, just like, um, you know, sort of uh, support for um, uh, sort of urban gardens um, and, uh, and 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 community gardens and, or, or, and organic farming um, are, are, are considered um, sort of very simpatico uh, with environmental justice ends, even though uh, that means less food that is more expensive um, right. uh, for the people who are least able to sort of pay for it. Um, and, and if you start to like look at, at these programs, you don't really find any efficacy to them. It's not to say that I don't think there should be urban gardens um, or that, you know, rooftop solar panels should be illegal or anything. Um, but it is to say that our sort of I, I think our environmental injustice wires have gotten crossed in a bunch of ways because this sort of aesthetic and ideological uh, priorities of environmentalism have been sort of, I think, in many cases, uncritically imported into environmental justice circles. Right, right. I mean, it's it's interesting. I think it's probably a stretch, uh, you know, to talk about Marx as a as a uh, influential figure uh, to the development of eco modernism. But you know, one of one of the uh, modernist uh, analyses was very much one of of kind of class, right? And I'm wondering, um, in your perception, as you know, uh, a member of a think tank, um, I think the eco modernist movement is is generally. Um, made up of, of well-educated, fairly well-off people. I'm hearing you describe, you know, how great modernity is in terms of your ability to drive here, drive there, go up to taste wines in Sonoma. Like, is eco-modernism like out of touch with, with the working class, shall we say? I mean, I'm thinking about comparing what you've described to, you know, the, um, what do we call it again? The, uh, alienation that, um, you know, from nature and from, you know, I think in a classical kind of Marxian sense, just from the, the fruits of their production of, of being like an Amazon uh, warehouse worker where you're having to like piss in a cup and you're working endless hours doing totally monotonous work. Like is, is there any, you know, I, I read John Simmons uh, book, Eco-Modernism, which was, you know, trying to introduce a lot more of a social democratic um, analysis and a progressive analysis to eco-modernism. And I think his critique is that, you know, so much of the eco-modernist thinking comes out of, California um, and and some of the economic and political realities um, of of uh, of that uh, physical location. So questions of you know class analysis and and public versus private ownership are, are those ideas that are coming up when when talking about um, 
equal modern justice. I know, uh, I think it's Jennifer Hernandez did a big thing on uh, Green Jim Crow in California. There's certainly there's, um, maybe it's much more than lip service, but there's a concern, um, you know, and I think that's a really exciting thing about, about the approach here. Uh, almost anyone who spends an appreciable amount of their time sort of identifying as an environmentalist or environmental researcher is to some degree disconnected or alienated from the working class. I mean, we, we live in an increasingly stratified society, stratified by educational and class lines um, more than almost anything these days. Um, and, and so I think it would be a naive or dishonest of me not not to reckon uh, with the degree to which sort of eco-modernism is somewhat disconnected from the sort of um, immediate needs, interests, um, uh, and values of the sort of poor and working class, even though it's, it's actually tremendously important, at least to us at the Breakthrough Institute, to take those things very seriously. What I, what I would say is that uh, some of the most sort of fervent uptake <laughs> of our sort of policy agendas and our ideas have come from low and middle income countries, um, uh, uh, many of whom have much lower sort of average rates of, uh, have average amounts of wealth uh, than, than rich countries do. You know, I think when, um, when your sort of material deprivation is the degree to which it is in many sub-Saharan Saharan African countries or a country like Bangladesh or parts of rural India, um, then, uh, then the sort of, uh, the, the, the necessary precondition of economic growth and industrialization to environmental sustainability is a lot more obvious. Um, that said, um, you know, we are, I, I think, um, trying again to, to wrestle with both the imperative of meeting the needs of sort of poor and working class communities, uh, with, uh, sort of an eco-modernist vision of policy and technological progress. Um, and I think sometimes that's going to be that, that's going to be less messy than in other cases. You know, like it's it's fairly obvious um, that we should keep Diablo Canyon open. Um, it's it's somewhat less obvious. And, and this is where I recommend Jennifer Hernandez's essay that you just mentioned. It's somewhat less obvious um, uh, what exactly to do uh, in, in eco-modernist terms about housing. You know, it's, it's one thing for me. To, uh, to strongly advocate for transit-oriented density and bike paths and walkable communities, because that's where I live in Oakland. But a tremendous amount of the sort of poor and working class in, in, in California, and I'll, I'll get out of California in a moment, but a tremendous amount of poor and working class communities in California neither can nor even want to live in like the Temescal district down the street from the, uh, from the, the Burmese and the Puerto Rican place right next to a BART station and this huge condo complex. Um, you know, they want, uh, they want to live in the suburbs with a yard and with a, and, and with a driveway and with two cars, or they need to, uh, in order to access their right. jobs. And so that, um, and sort of dealing with that difficulty is is a, a, a sort of central concern of eco modernism, um, and then um, you know to get uh, you know e- even so sort of higher level um, in in you know your points about sort of in industrial organization and, and Marx and, and Amazon and things like that, um, you know I, I think that um, uh, I, I think that the sort of uh, the, the 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 working class um, that uh, that enables um, uh, our our modern lifestyles uh, and those are going to be things like farm workers in big farms and things like uh, things like Amazon workers and and people who deliver our food and uh, and, and deliver you know our, our Amazon Prime stuff um, though you know those are the interests um, that I think uh, need to be served by some kind of eco modern progress. Um, and I, I think there's got to be a lot of sort of ideological and policy disagreement about what to do about that. But I, I wouldn't say that the solution is to uh, is, is always going to be to, to roll back to sort of smaller farms or smaller mom and pop shops doing all of what Amazon and Target are doing today. Um, I think an eco-modern outcome can, uh, can, can just as easily and maybe even more easily be um, to sort of sustain um, these these mega systems and, and in, in many cases sort of mega corporations um, who are who are doing sort of tremendously uh, efficient work in delivering sort of material uh, goods around the world. Um, the solution there, I think, is not to uh, again not to sort of roll back the economic clock, but is better worker protections. Um, uh, is is, be- is things like a minimum wage or or things like unionization. You know, not to take a sort of 
um, uh, position on on all of those things because it's going to be it's going to be very complicated. Um, but again, I think when we look at uh, whether it's sort of a uh, you know the ex- exposures to environmental uh, to to uh, environmental pollution or uh, or or sort of on the job hazards from uh, from the from types of jobs like uh, being a farm worker or, or working at an Amazon factory, um, you know I think an impulse. Um, is that these uh, institutions are bad and should and should and we should um, uh, again either roll back the clock or decentralize or, dis- or or sort of radically distribute our production system so that they're much much more smaller um, uh, and, and sort of uh, more uh, sort of more distributed among the community. Um, but I but I looking historically and I think even in contemporary terms, you see quite a bit of. Uh, of abuse um, and uh, and poor wages uh, and, and exposures to en- environmental Under problems, feudalism. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Exposure to yeah. environmental problems in small systems, uh, even many in many cases even more so than you do in, in big systems. Um, so uh, again, I don't. I don't uh, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up here, but I, I don't think that's to say that the eco modern sort of utopia is is nigh, nor that it's simply a slightly better Amazon. Uh, you know, Amazon.com. Um, but it is to say that the, the the way that we talk about sort of our economic arrangements and our systems of production are kind of broken um, if if we don't uh, reckon with the, the degree to which these systems exist for a reason. Right. You know, I, I think another thing that was striking about uh, about the most recent dialogues is uh, almost I think all the all the authors were you know from racialized communities. Um, you guys get a lot of voices from the developing world, and, and that's another you know real issue with eco modern justice. Is I don't know if it's been framed this way. I, I've I've read at least one book that talked about sort of this new eco imperialism of you know wealthy countries that are trying to prevent development within third world countries and and you know for um reasons of environmental protection climate protection but with very serious implications because um industrialization allows climate adaptation and without that a lot of people are, are going to die as our, our climate worsens so um maybe we got to wrap up pretty shortly but if you can sort of touch on on that theme i think that would be that's a useful, a useful element of, of this, uh, this theme. Yeah. I mean, in, in the, our sort of environmental and climate aesthetics, uh, imported mostly, I think, from Malthusian and romantic thinking have, uh, just like they've been sort of smuggled into domestic environmental justice concerns have been totally smuggled into, uh, our inter- or international aid and development systems, uh, full stop. Uh, you know, we, we are absolutely, importing uh, sort of mostly aesthetic uh, environmental and climate preferences um, and and imposing them on poor and middle income countries um, uh, in ways that will not benefit them or the climate um, and are at the very least hypocritical um, uh, you know to say that we're going to impose restrictions on uh, on natural gas or oil development in Mozambique, while we still live in the United States and we consume more oil per capita than almost any country in the world. And sustaining new gas plants on the- uh, Right, and building more gas plants so we can shut down our own nuclear plants. Uh, You know, know, the European Union has restrictions on importing genetically modified organisms from agricultural uh, systems in in Africa, um, you know, var- various international development agencies around the world uh, continue to place restrictions on oil and gas uh, infrastructural in- investment in in places like sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, while they continue to build new pipelines and new power plants, and you know, inside their own borders, um, and and these are uh, th- these are framed as climate justice interventions. That we're not going to build any more gas plants in Africa. We're not, or you know, we're not going to. Um, prop up industrial agriculture in India um, when uh, when what we're doing there is we're actually uh, preventing uh, we're, we're, we're preventing sovereignty we're preventing sort of democratic self determination we're, we're, pre- we're preventing um, societies and communities who have less wealth and, and less freedom from from choosing their own sort of technological and so and social destiny um, in the name of, of environmental or climate justice um, and that is you know that that is fairly appalling to me uh, and it is and is one of the reasons for the existence of uh, of these newer conversations about eco-modern justice. Yeah, there was a, a Samir Saran quote that I, I turned into a little meme, but I, I think it went something like, you know, our our poverty cannot be your your climate plan, your climate solution. Um, <clears throat> we're going to close up to any minute now, but uh, again, thinking about, you know, visions of the future, um, reading James Lovelock uh, is, is such a such a 
mind bending, right? He's, he's just such an incredible thinker, but you know, he, he really, uh, I I think he looks really askance at, you know, the, uh, the billionaires wanting to settle or die on Mars, um, and really talks about just how special this, this pale blue dot that we live on is. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, discourses around like terraforming Mars and, and making it habitable, um, while in a sense, we're sort of Venus forming Earth um, and, you know, kind of creating our own little space colonies of survivability. If we look forward to, you know, three degrees in 2100 and, you know, the likelihood that we're, we're not going to get to net zero and these temperatures may increase and, and continue to climb, you know, thinking of places like Dubai, which are, you know, very rich um, and I guess able to stave off a pretty uninhabitable environment when they're, you know, artificial cryospheres, you know, the, these are some of the sort of dystopian futures that I, that I worry about um, and that I worry about, uh, potentially a, a kind of lack of of radicalism within eco-modernism to to push a little harder or to uh you know to to be a little less pragmatic i think in terms of trying to avoid uh, some of those dystopias and i mean maybe that's a better outcome or probably is a better outcome than you know the equivalent of people being in a warming world and and living in tents and on the coast of the waters off of dubai but um you know just just some uh, closing thoughts on that and then uh, unfortunately we're gonna have to wrap it up because uh, we're up on the hour i'll have to come back and talk about interplanetary eco-modernism which is a a subject that we've actually talked about in previous breakthrough dialogues and i was and we end up talking about it at lunch around uh, around the office a lot um, yeah. I don't have a strong position on uh, on sort of colonizing Mars. I'm perfectly fine if some combination of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, NASA and India and China build some bases on Mars this century and maybe have some permanent human settlements there. Um, uh, in the extremely long term, uh, you know, once we have sort of replicators and warp drives and can like get to the moons of venus and you know or or like build dyson spheres around the solar system you know i i, I suppose i'm that's cool um nothing in the lifetime of our great great grandchildren let alone ourselves i think um is uh is, is going to offer another planet the type of home that this one does um if we can if we get to a point in the next one to 10 centuries where we can terraform Mars to make it habitable for a large human population, then we can certainly terraform this one to make it more habitable um, than it might otherwise be. Um, uh, and, and certainly that's the case uh, in our lifetime and the lifetime of our children and grandchildren. Um, so I'm, I, I, don't, I don't think that we should outlaw space travel um, or even the, uh, public and private efforts to mine asteroids and to get to Mars and to put some people there. Um, but just given the, the literal physics of it, um, it's just not a, it's not actually a, a planetary survival question and won't be for I would expect centuries, not just generations. Um, uh, what we, we have our home. Um, it is unique uh, in the solar system and in our in our view of anything, anything reachable. Mm-hmm. And we should protect it. Um, and we can absolutely explore while doing that. Um, but nothing that we do out there, I think, for at least the next hundred or five hundred years, um, is going to rival this beautiful blue dot that we live on right now. That has been that we've been evolving and getting actually better at living on um, over the last, uh, you know. Depending on where you start, you know the the dawn of Homo sapiens. You know, <laughs> last tripping. last fifty hundred thousand years. All right, Alex, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. I've I've learned a lot from this. It's a it's a really fascinating topic, and uh, we look forward to having you back to opine on on some other uh, some other issues. So thanks for making the time again, my friend. I would love to come back, Chris. Thanks for having me. All the best. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.